In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome to the Politically Georgia podcast, your place for news and analysis of all things Georgia politics. I'm guest host Condice Presley, but I'm here with your regular host, Greg Bluestein, politics reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and Leroy Chapman, deputy managing editor for the AJC. And we've just wrapped two hours of debates with the candidates who want to be Georgia's next governor. Greg, between Democrats Stacey Abrams and Stacey Evans, did we see a winner? Did Evans gain any ground? I don't know if we saw an exact winner, but we saw Stacey Evans, who's trailing in the polls, come out swinging against her opponent, Stacey Abrams. Um, she attacked Stacey a- a- Abrams uh, most repeatedly over the Hope Scholarship issue that she kind of staked her campaign over. She also sought to uh, to plant a seed in voters' minds that maybe she's not as progressive as she makes it out to be on voting rights. She she questioned Stacey Abrams on her support for a Republican-backed plan to cut the number of voting rights days from 45 days to 20 early voting days from 45 days to 21 days. Uh, so that was a, one of the m- many flashpoints in this debate. Overall, though, both of them kind of try to go on the same sort of track, try to position themselves to the left, on the left of the electorate, to try to get those primary voters who will make, be the deciding factor in the Democratic electorate on Tuesday. I think the debate laid bare what uh, I think is true, perhaps uh, with the polling, which says that Stacey Evans has a gap to make up. So uh, her aggression was needed today. And it was needed in order to be able to uh, at least, um, in, in the minds of some voters, uh, say that uh, maybe the uh, uh, prohibitive uh, favorite at this point um, isn't all she stacked up to be, number one. Number two, um, I think that uh, looking to uh, for voters who might be thinking about a general election, she's also wanting to position herself a little bit there, too, as that she's electable. So uh, it seems like that's that's her case. Um, and I think we saw, uh, again, with some of the sparring, a little bit of that. And let's listen in. In 2011, if people remember, we were in the midst of an economic recession. The HOPE program, which is pre-K, technical college, and college, is funded by the lottery. And the lottery was in jeopardy, and no one denies that the lottery was going to run out of money. When that happened, we were also under Republican rule. Republicans controlled every statewide office, the governor's office, they had a supermajority in the Senate and were close to one in the House. The answer was not to simply say no. That would have been a symbolic response to hold on to what was passed and was not going to happen again. I went to work. I worked with Republicans, first fought with them, and finally got three concessions. One that in in addition to the Zell Miller Scholarship, which is a full tuition scholarship, there is also the HOPE II, which is the B Average Grant. 
Number two, we saved pre-K for 500,000 students since 2011. Number three, we saved remedial courses for technical college, and I then asked Representative Evans and Representative Craig Gordon to carry legislation to restore the 2.0. But on top of that, the 100,000 person number that my opponent uses is that's how many students got hope last year. The reality is hope is alive and well, and it is disingenuous to say anything else. You don't save the HOPE scholarship by cutting it. That's why the Georgia Legislative Black Caucus took a position against the legislation in 2011 that my opponent co-authored. That's why every single Democrat in the state Senate voted against that legislation. And that's why ultimately the majority of the Democrats in the House voted against it too. I have put forward two facts in this campaign. After those cuts, 97% of African-American high school students lost access to full tuition HOPE scholarships. So there we have it. She has made the Hope Scholarship and mm -hmm. access to it the central primary focus of her campaign. But there were many other issues that we were able to discuss in the hour. Yeah, but if you go back to Hope, I mean, if there is a central disagreement that has sort of colored this entire race, it's that Hope Scholarship 2011 legislation. Uh, the, you know, remember that time there was an over, still is, but an overwhelming Republican majority in the Georgia legislature, an incoming new governor, Governor Nathan Deal, who had set out to cut awards to make, in, the, in his words, to make the program more financially solvent for the long term. Um, at that point, Stacey Abrams went to the negotiating table with Democrat, with Republicans on this deal. In the Senate, you had most Democrats actually vote against it. And Stacey Evans was one of the few Democrats in the state house who voted against it. She says essentially that Stacey Abrams betrayed, betrayed Democrats on that central point where Stacey Abrams says she did what she could to stave off deeper cuts. And that's really what voters, what Stacey Evans is asking voters to boil down to is saying that by doing that, Stacey Abrams did not fight for Democratic values. I think in picking this up too, uh, the subtext of race, which uh, is has been, again, uh, sort of a thread in this campaign, you see that even in this uh, particular issue of hope and sort of the calculation that Evans is making because she points out again uh, the disproportionate impact of this vote on African Americans. And so she says that and uses this as sort of a leadership litmus test, you know, is uh, Stacey Abrams looking out for uh, black children? So um, I think there's certainly that calculation, but the math of who's going to vote in this primary means that uh, the significant sway African-Americans have, that it, it seems to be a legitimate thing that she wants to say, uh, maybe you should think twice. And that's sort of the another underlying theme of this race, is that uh, Abrams, as the House Minority Leader, cut a sort of figure in the Georgia State House as a pragmatic deal maker with Republicans. And, and she, she, she forged compromises with Republicans, not just on this issue, but on, on many others uh, throughout the sessions. While, while in the Senate Democratic Caucus, there's a lot more of a sort of block of no votes. And Stacey Evans is trying to portray her opponent as, as not a real true progressive because of, because of her deal making with, with Republicans over and over again. Whereas we asked that question today, but Stacey Abrams says it does, doesn't change the fact that at heart I am a progressive, but I also am a realist and knew that I had to forge these deals in order to get some Democratic concessions for some of these very important deals. Isn't the kind of lawmaker that Stacey Abrams was in the General Assembly what we would like to see in our representatives in Congress? Isn't this why Congress has such a low approval rating? Because no, there are no pragmatists there. Everybody is either a yes vote on this, a no vote on that, and there is no compromise. 
I, mean, I think it gives us a clue of how she would be, how she would uh, govern as governor, because she would have to cut deals. I mean, for all the talk we're hearing now about, I would say no to this, I'd say no to that. There will have to be deals cut because no matter what happens in November. Uh, it's a 99.99999% chance that Republicans will still have not just a majority, but an overwhelming majority in the Georgia legislature. So she'll have to cut deals. So whoever's elected, if they want to get any of their priorities done, will have to do a little bit what Stacey Abrams did, uh, you know, during her several years as House Minority Leader. So, Leroy, you were noting the back and forth and the sparring that happened when the candidates had an opportunity to ask each other questions. Yes, so one of the things I think was was pretty clear is that uh, Evans uh, had to, uh, again, she uh, understands the realities of the polling, um, but also saw some things, too, where uh, Abrams seemed to be uh, prepared to also strike back and sort of, sort of introduce some things, too. Uh, one of the things was the, the uh, countrywide uh, mortgage lending crisis that uh, actually another thing that disproportionately affected African-Americans, and she brought that up, too. Uh, which is uh, something that Evans uh, had to defend. So, And we've uh, got that. Well, let's, let's give a listen. I ran a small business like most legislators in the General Assembly. I had a company that had a great idea, and we worked with President Barack Obama's administration to get access to capital in the midst of the Great Recession. Now, at the time I was doing that, my opponent was working for Countrywide, a company that's been listed as one of the worst companies in America because of what they did to decimate the mortgage industry. I am proud of what I did during the Great Recession, and I am proud of my leadership as the Democratic leader who helped Georgia. All right, I'll give you 15 seconds, yes. I, I would like 30, yes, she's hit me, right. absolutely. I'm not engaging in trickery. She has just admitted that she lobbied on behalf of her, co her company to the government. If you wanna draw a distinction between county and state, I don't think that's one that the, that the voters are going to appreciate. But let me say this, uh, and I find it really uh, sad Ms. Abrams, that you would talk about this countrywide case because that was a case I worked on as a young associate at a large law firm, and you worked for a large law firm too, and I didn't dig through and see every case that you might have appeared on the pleadings on. The truth is I was on this case for maybe two months. I don't remember doing any work on it because I left the firm shortly after I was put on these pleadings to stand up for a brave doctor and a nurse who blew the whistle on Medicare fraud allegations at a national dialysis chain, and I recovered over $300 million for the taxpayer. So I am extremely proud of my record as an attorney, and I am very disheartened that my opponent would try to uh, mischaracterize my legal career. Do we think that Stacey Evans knew that was coming today? I think so. I mean, this was a big moment in exchange in the debate because it started with Stacey Evans uh, attacking Stacey Abrams for her, stand, her her role in this this company called Now Account that got ended up getting some federal contracts. And Stacey Evans uh, also asked Stacey Abrams why she appeared in person uh, to, a, to a Fulton County meeting trying to advocate for, for some grants. And Stacey Abrams essentially said, yeah, I, I did this, but, but, I'm, but I was doing it from a, uh, you know, not, not a legislative standpoint. I was not doing this as a politician. I was doing this as a private citizen and then hit her back on the countrywide issue. This has been sort of an, another undercurrent in this race. There was a story that was published in a, an online uh, news outlet about whether or not Stacey Evans was trying to take advantage of African-American voters while at the same time trying to appeal to African-American voters because, of course, Black voters will be these sort of the, the they're the biggest block of voters in this Democratic uh, electorate, and black women alone might 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 com comprise a forty five percent of the electorate that's going to vote on Tuesday. So it's there's there's been this running battle for black women voters and black voters overall um, because no candidate can win without a significant uh, you know chunk of black voters. 
I think that exchange also showed uh, the, one of the few times that Evans really had to play defense. Um, you know, she obviously uh, needs to to be on attack. I mean, she's the one who's behind, and I think uh, you know Abrams is in the in the position of of not having to to really be as aggressive. But I think that was the one moment where uh, Evans really had to to defend herself. So, with forty eight hours left to go on on the Democratic side, uh, who does what? Well, they're both trying to get that their bases out and their supporters out. And um, this is going to be a real test of Stacey Abrams' strategy because she has not spent nearly as much as Stacey Evans has on, on TV advertising, traditional advertising, I guess you'd say. Um, she spent a lot more money on grassroots organizing, on door-to-door, in-person appeals to voters, um, canvassing, that, that kind of thing. And um, and that's how she also thinks she could win in November. So this would be a real tough first test of that strategy. Now, she's in a good position. When your opponent releases an internal poll showing uh, that she's already behind by eight points, you know, Evans released an internal poll showing that she was trailing Abrams by eight points. That's a, that's a pretty good sign of where we think things might go. Um, but Evans folks say that, you know, it all depends on turnout models. And um, if if there's a, a sort of surge near the end, you, you've seen a lot of Democratic uh, early voters already that those numbers are rising compared to 2014. Um, so, you know, you never know. But both of them are going to be re- really leaning on their ground games these last couple of days. Oh, yeah. So so Greg's right. I think turnout really is the key. Um, this is still, uh, of course, a an election off year election cycle. Uh, sort of where you don't have the benefit of a presidential election year. Uh, historically, we know what, what those uh, voting tallies typically are, and enthusiasm and participation is generally lower. With this, uh, I think that uh, turnout is everything, and so we'll see. I think with uh, Abrams and the test that she will uh, certainly uh, find out a little bit about uh, is, you know, will the ground game work? Will the retail politics of uh, spending all of your money instead of uh, broadly communicating uh, the more personal touch and uh, the organizational uh, effort, will that work? Um, it sort of remains to be seen. I think there's yeah. a, but, but it will say something about November, and uh, I'm really kind of looking forward to it. It'll be interesting, it. too, to see. Um, one of the things, of course, we'll be watching all demographics, but I'm, I'm also going to be watching where, where the white voters end up. They, they play a, you know, a smaller block of voters, about 30 40% of the Democratic electorate, um, but Stacey Evans is hoping to win, I don't know, three quarters of them, maybe 80% of white voters. And um, if if Stacey Abrams ends up winning a decent chunk of it, that that, is, that pretends very well for her in the November election, um, because it shows that a lot of white liberal Democratic voters are very open to voting for her. Um, you know, if they're voting for the primary, they'll certainly probably support her in the, in the general. And there's a small sliver of voters who uh, may approach this primary with you know, will I vote Republican or Democratic who aren't really party loyalists? I mean, they don't see themselves as being uh, partisan in that way. So that's an interesting dynamic, too. I mean, will will they be attracted to either? And I think that both races have their own dynamics, which, you know, who knows? But I think Greg's right, though, about the uh, the white vote. That's going to be critical. And that's generally part of this overall uh, trend here, too, is where, where what happens to the voters in the middle? Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens to we're, we're seeing both parties and we'll talk about the Republicans in a second, but we're seeing both parties sort of running to their flanks. And Democrats are doing so in a way that we've never seen Democrats in Georgia really do on gun control, on on uh, uh, tax, uh, financial help, on decriminalization of, of marijuana, on, on a bunch of other issues um, where Democrats were centrist just four years ago who, who are now running to their flanks and Republicans 
are very much going to their flanks. So it's the Goldilocks effect. What happens to the, the centrists in the middle? A lot of them, the answer is a lot of them just won't vote on Tuesday because they might not be um, interested in either candidate. But many of those will be voting in November. And, and the race back towards the center and whether or not these candidates can even move back to the center after mm-hmm. some of the statements they made will be very fun to watch. It was, it was striking just to hear uh, Abrams open saying that uh, I'm not the one who got a B plus from the NRA. And then uh, that being corrected to say, well, I actually got a D from the NRA. So that is interesting to see Democrats uh, talk about the gun issue in a way that uh, I think it's bedoubled yeah. them for a long, long time. Well, and it's very like... much top of mind with what happened in Santa Fe, Texas, just mm-hmm. Friday. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember how many school shootings exactly there have been in the United States this year. So it's something that I think parents are concerned about. And there was the the poll that was done by the University of Georgia for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and Channel 2 Action News that showed a bit of moving towards the middle, even among conservative voters, with respect to the idea of responsible gun law. Mm-hmm. A majority of, of, of Republican voters and a majority of voters overall, overall are supportive of more gun restrictions. Now, they didn't specify how far they wanted those restrictions to go to, but there is a, an increasing willingness um, to go that route. But Remember, the Republican conservative primary voter uh, is still holds the NRA in, in very high esteem and isn't willing to go that far. But just as a sort of side note, just to show you how far the Democrats have gone on this issue, Jason Carter in 2014 ran calling himself an NRA Democrat. And Roy Barnes had the NRA's endorsement in 98 and 2002. Um, so you've seen Democrats really shift in just a matter of a few years, dramatically shift on the issue of gun control. And now it's sort of unthinkable for a Democrat in Georgia to be running on an NRA-based platform. Now they're fighting to see how vigorously both would oppose the NRA with Stacey Evans saying she has a D, Stacey Abrams saying, well, I did you, I have an F. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of the Republicans, we had an opportunity to uh, engage all five candidates who are seeking the Republican nomination for governor. We expect that there will be a runoff in nine weeks from Tuesday. Uh, Greg, big takeaways. Yeah, well, Casey Cagle is the front runner, and this was really one of the first times where he didn't necessarily act in total totality as the front runner. In other forums, I've seen about a dozen of them, I think, for on the Republican side, he's kind of tried to stay above the fray for the most part. And while he did that with some of the questions, uh, and also had an eye to the general electorate, um, he he also hit Hunter Hill s- multiple times um, in a clear indication that. Casey Cagle does not want to face former state Senator Hunter Hill in this July runoff. He would much rather face Brian Kemp or Clay Tippins or or even Michael Williams. Uh, And that was made clear with several of his attacks. And why is that? Well, Hunter Hill, um, he's a former military veteran. So he he served as a U.S. Army Air Force Ranger, uh, Airborne Ranger, I should say. Um, He's younger than Casey Cagle. And he also has the sort of economic argument going for him. He he has made his campaign... um, a lot about his calls to significantly reduce the state budget, to double transportation spending, and to eliminate the state income tax, which would which would which would amount to about ten billion dollars in revenue. Casey Cagle re- relentlessly attacked Hill on that plan today, saying that overall, in order to make up that revenue, it would actually end up increasing the tax burden on Georgia residents by increasing sales tax in a way that would many would find uh, to be very onerous. Um, so I think I think that. 
whatever internal polling, whatever testing the Cagle campaign does shows that Kemp would be a much easier adversary for him than Hunter Hill. And Kemp seemed to be very much enjoying it, smiling throughout the, throughout the debate. One of the things I think uh, was, was striking about, not, not only that, but uh, it was uh, you've got a field of five. And so you have to distinguish yourself. And we know there's likely to be a runoff, right? So no one is nothing that we've seen thus far says that uh, the the front runner who we 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 polling says is Cagle uh, will actually get fifty percent plus one. So looking ahead to the general and also looking at who might wind up being in that second slot, uh, seeing Kemp uh, also be under attack a little bit from the guys who perhaps are looking to can I get into the runoff? Uh, it seemed that we saw in the sparring a little bit of uh, both Kemp and. Cagle, uh, both kind of bear the brunt of the the, the sharp questions from uh, their opponents during that session. As a matter of fact, Clay Tippins was one of the ones who really wanted to take it to Secretary of State Brian Kemp. Let's listen. As the only outsider businessman in this race, I'm going to be the number one champion for small business. So, Brian, you've been Secretary of State for three terms, and you failed to revoke the annual registration tax on small businesses. Instead of taking your chainsaw to business, you continue to force small businesses to pay an onerous and costly tax. Why? Well, Clay, uh, I'm sure you, well, maybe you don't realize because you don't have the experience that I do, but the uh, prices for annual registrations are set in state law. So we took, I took an oath to follow state law, so that's what we do. It's unfortunate that the legislature has time and again, those fees, uh, for those Georgians that don't know this, we collect the fees, they go into the general fund, the legislature and all the people except for Mr. Tippins on the stage appropriate that money uh, where they have continued to reduce re resources in the Secretary of State's office and pay for other things in state government. But that is clearly something that the legislature would have to deal with. What we've done is improve services in our office, streamline our systems, made government more efficient despite having our uh, appropriations cut six out of eight years, I believe it was, in the corporations division. I'll respond. Uh, another thing for small businesses critical is security of information. As Lieutenant Commander in the Navy SEALs, you learn to take care of information, and you learn that the leader is responsible for the actions of their people. Brian's office, his people, had two security breaches and leaked seven million social security numbers of Georgia voters. To cover that up, they wiped servers clean just like Hillary Clinton. Well, this is where Clay Tippins thinks he has, he has sort of a lane as, as the only true outsider. He's the only one on that stage of, of five men who have never served political elected office before. And so he's been trying to prosecute this case throughout the entire race is that as an outsider, he's not a career politician and he's going to bring fresh ideas to this race. And that's why you're hearing him focus on things that, that you know, many other candidates, especially Nobody's Republicans. Nobody's talking about, no. Yeah, like sex trafficking and third opioid grade reading. Opioid abuse and third grade reading, yes. Medical marijuana. Um, and in the and this was one of the first times I've seen him, I've heard him um, hit Kemp over um, what could be his biggest vulnerability, which is the fact that there was a data breach and that, that his office uh, released the confidential information of millions of Georgia voters a few years ago. Um, and, uh, and he's been called by several of his opponents on Twitter, on social media, incompetent because of it. But very rarely have I actually seen them you know, using that language in person. Well, one of the things I think uh, you get with some of these exchanges, uh, two things. I mean, one, you've got uh, a field of five. You need to distinguish yourself. 
there are issues that you, you need to pick out that I think people may resonate with because uh, if you look at all of them running to the right, I mean, there are very few distinctions on a lot of things like guns and taxes, uh, save for the, the thing that we hear uh, with, um, with uh, Senator Hill, who's looking to uh, eliminate the income tax. But there are very few real big, hard, sharp differences. So something like the competency of your office and whether or not you played a role in being asleep at the switch during cybersecurity, whether or not as a private businessman you did the same thing. You can go down the line of some of these things that I think they're trying to surface at mm-hmm. this last hour to sort of at least something, a topic that will resonate with voters that perhaps might create either some doubt or either some confidence in someone who, uh, with again, a field that where you've got a lot of uh, candidates who profile very similarly. Uh, that's something that uh, perhaps, you know, some of these folks walked in thinking that maybe this will help me. I think you're exactly right. It's yeah. such a crowded race that they have to drive home their messages. For Hunter Hill, it's the income tax. For Brian Kemp, it might be those two very provocative ads he aired over the last few weeks. And he put a million bu- bucks behind them. For Clay Tippins, is the fact that he's an outsider. And for Michael Williams, it might just be the de- deportation bus tour that got a lot of national attention over the last week. I was surprised, not surprised, but it was interesting. One of the questions that was asked during the debate of all five candidates noted a a Republican poll that showed a greater shifting towards the middle with many conservative voters identifying, self-identifying themselves as being more moderate. Yet when asked each candidate, is there any issue on which you would characterize yourself as moderate? we received the most succinct answers Mm -hmm. to any question that was presented in the hour. No. And that's a reflection of the electorate that they're trying to reach out to. Because I bet if we ask them that same uh, question in October when we when we go do the general election uh, debate, they'll have very di- whoever the Republican nominee is will have very different answers. But right now they're trying to go after a sliver of the Republican electorate that trends to be much more conservative than the rest of the the general elected at large and even the Republican electorate at large. And so they all know as the political calculus that they have to, you know, whether or not it's the right thing, they feel like they have to go to the far right of their party um, to in, in order to energize voters to show up in such a crowded primary. That's why we're not only seeing that stance on that question about being moderate, but we're seeing gun rights stances on that. You know, all, all the candidates on that stage uh, approved, endorsed constitutional carry, um, which would be a, a big shift in Georgia gun policy. Most of the candidates on that stage a- approved and endorsed much stricter abortion restrictions. Um, all of them, except for Clay Tippins, pledged to sign a religious liberty measure. And even Clay Tippin said he probably would do so. He just he doesn't he want to, to read pledge. It first. He wants to read it first. And so we're seeing them all try to stake those stances because they don't want to be disqualified uh, before Tuesday as a sort of, quote unquote, mushy moderate. Yeah. And everyone, it seemed, was determined to stand as close to or as much as they could with the president as possible, which led to this exchange between Michael Williams and Lieutenant Governor Cagle. It's disgusting to me to hear Casey Cagle down there taking credit for this tax break that we we passed. I voted for as well this past session. Donald Trump is the reason we were able to pass this tax break this past session. Casey Cagle is out there pushing Jeb Bush and wouldn't even come out and support Donald Trump during the, during the general election against Hillary. Yet here he is talking about how he pushed for this tax break. He had 12 years as lieutenant governor to do that, and he didn't until Trump did it. 
it's important to understand the facts, please. And that is for anyone to say that I did not support Donald Trump is wrong. And he knows that because I have a picture at the National Republican Convention with him on the floor. Real quickly, he was there with me at the RNC and he did speak, but he said, I support the nominee. He did not say, I support President Trump. There's a big difference and we all know that at that point in time. So who had a good day, who had a bad day? Well, what you couldn't see in that clip, by the way, was Casey Cagle just rolling his eyes in such an exaggerated way. Uh, and, and you look, all the Republicans, all five of them, uh, they all know that Williams was the first candidate to, to endorse the state official, the first state official in Georgia um, to endorse uh, uh, Donald Trump back in uh, late 2015. But they've all tried to neutralize his impact on this race by all saying that, yes, they might not have endorsed him as, as early as as, as Michael Williams, but they all support him and they all support the Republican nominee. And they've all tried to make this, this race more about state issues. Michael Williams has very closely tethered his, his fortunes to Donald Trump and tried to make Donald Trump um, the end-all, be-all to his campaign. And, um, you know, while also trying to outflank his opponents on the right on many other issues. But um, I think overall, I mean, Casey Cagle probably came into this debate trying to say, we're not going to screw this up. We don't want to mess anything up. We, we want to give a broader base sort of vision for Georgia while also maybe hurting uh, Hunter Hill. And we'll see if that worked on Tuesday, but he did get a few licks on Hunter Hill. And I think Hunter Hill was more ready for it this time than he was uh, in past debates. Do you think that he helped himself any with a more toned down performance? I mean, you've seen all of these candidates every day for the last 10 days, I know. Well, look, he's trying to um, position it. He's the only candidate who has really kept one eye on the general election while the other eye on the primary because he's been up in the polls all the time. He's been up double digits in, the, in every single poll we've seen. So he has a little bit more flexibility than the other candidates who are trying to gain ground by attacking him on, on the right. Um, I think that in the runoff, it's going to be a lot harder uh, to, to, to have that message because they're as tepid and, uh, and tough as, uh, this turnout is expected to be for Tuesday. think about the runoff turnout. It's runoff turnout. It's going to be even, yeah, dismal. Yeah. It's in the middle of July, right? July 24th July 20th, yeah. as the, is the runoff. Leroy, you it's, wanted to say something. Yeah. No, I just wonder about the, the Trump, uh, right now with, uh, sort of tethering yourself to the president. I wonder how that plays out in the general election. Uh, I think some of our polling, uh, and of course, that's a snapshot of, of right now, but uh, November is an eternity away. So I'd be interested in saying how uh, the president plays out in this particular general election, because uh, depending on where we stand at the moment, it could be uh, running toward or running away. So I'm, I'm very interested in saying that. One interesting thing to note about the Democratic side is if I recall correctly, I don't I don't think I heard Trump's name once. Um, I, I might so. be wrong, but I don't think I heard it at all. And even at the at another debate a couple of days ago, um, his name was also not mentioned once. At one point, I think it was Stacey Evans said the man in the White House, but then you mentioned his name. So you're seeing both the Democrats try to, you know, I think this will change, but right now they're not trying to uh, tie this election directly to, to Donald Trump, but rather sort of paint all Republicans as sort of uh, going really far to the right on immigration and guns and things like that that, that don't reflect the, the Georgia electorate at large. So do you think that Clay Tippins or Hunter Hill did anything today that gives them the confidence that they'll likely need uh, with voters to catch Brian Kemp on Tuesday? 
Yeah, I mean, I think they're going to be they're going to be tweeting out and 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 showing their supporters their highlights from 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 this debate. And for Clay Tippins especially, this was this was a lot of free media for him. Um, he's been spending you know more than five hundred thousand dollars on ads, um, but this was a big chunk of free media that he can he can go out and tell his supporters, "Here's this great you know clip of my answer." Uh, and and I think he was pretty sharp elbowed with some of his answers, saying he's essentially one of them. He said he's disgusted. Um, with with politics at large and 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 didn't want to play political games like 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 the others on stage, um, so he might have a chance to sort of differentiate himself from the rest of the field. Um, but again, these these Clay and um, and Hunter Hill, Senator Hill, are both behind Brian Kemp in the latest polls we've had. It's still close, but the, he's they're both about five or six points behind him, uh, taking out the the margin of error. So they have some ground to make up these last few days. Not to say it's not it's it's not impossible to do so, but it's it's still um, there's a gap. And did Casey Cagle, our lieutenant governor, look like a true front runner today? I think he he walked in uh, certainly with with that advantage, and I don't think he did anything today to dissuade anyone from from that. Uh, I think that some of the the questions that he sort of takes about a lot of things like, you know, Amazon and some other stuff, other things that he has to have prepared answers for. Uh, probably don't even matter as much in this uh, primary. Uh, and, and, and so some of those things will matter more if he gets mm-hmm. to a general. Um, but I think with the other candidates, though, we're talking about with a field like this, you know, the math says that, you know, there could be a single percentage point between or, or three or four between a, a couple of candidates. So uh, it, it's going to be a, probably a long and interesting primary night uh, to figure out among those folks who aren't named Casey Cagle, uh, who perhaps might challenge him in a runoff. I mean, we very well could have, you know, three guys who are kind of in, in a bit of a clump who, you know, again, may, may be separated only by a couple of percentage points. Get your coffee ready. I mean, it re- doesn't it remind you a little bit of the mayoral runoff when we had, <laughs> and that was a lot more candidates, but, you know, there there is all this question about what it would take to get you into the runoff, and it could be as little as 15, you know, 17 points. Uh, and same thing with the 6th District. I remember Karen Handel had got about 20, 20 or so percentage points, and that got her into the runoff against John Ossoff. And, you know, you never know. Once you're in a runoff, uh, you know, again— It's a new day. Yeah, turnout's dismal, and anything could happen. Anything could happen. Final thoughts. Well, we're gonna be we're gonna be watching every twist and turn uh, here at AJC Channel Two Action News WSB Radio, um, and the the, can, the candidates are all gonna be doing a last minute sort of campaign blitz. We're seeing ethics complaints. We're seeing all sorts of accusations about illegal activity. Some of the stuff we won't be able to report because it's very very late in the game. Um, but we're we're seeing all sorts of shadowy mailers. And you know what? You know, every little bit, candidates think every little bit helps. And when you're looking at one or two percentage points, uh, maybe being the decider for who's the number two in the runoff, you know, it's, 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 it might be a no holds barred here right now at this stage. I'm most uh, interested in, in turnout just to see what, what kind of indicator for enthusiasm that may be. So we've got an election day where people can come out. And if you're a, a hardcore partisan, you probably circle this day to go vote and you will. Um, but I think. I'd like to see people who perhaps aren't and to see how many people actually show up and see if that there's actually enthusiasm on either side, uh, regardless of who um, who winds up uh, prevailing. So I, I'm looking for that as an indicator not only of this, but in this pretty pivotal election year for Georgia and the country for that matter. So so turnout is something I'll be watching. What about you, Condis? Uh, turnout is, is pivotal. And it's interesting to note that in the early voting, 
that there has been greater enthusiasm among Democratic voters than there has been among Republican voters. But again, the turnout numbers for this year, 2018, are still significantly lower than the turnout numbers were in 2016. But again, that was a presidential election year. Uh, It will be interesting to see how close that race for number two is. As you were talking, Greg, I was wondering, what if it's so close that the recount, if there had to be one, was for who earned the space mm-hmm. for the number two in the runoff, as opposed to being at the top of the ticket. Yeah, and remember just a few um, you know, weeks ago, there was talk about Casey Cagle winning this outright, you know, and, and, and his, his, his aides tried to tamp that down, but many of his supporters were talking about, you know, he, that was back when he was in the high 40s, mid 40s in polls, and there was $7 million or so of campaign funding, of which he spent more, about $5 million on TV ads. And so now that, you know, the, the post-election talk might be, despite spending so much money, he still couldn't avoid a runoff. For, so, so for him, uh, you know, either way, it might end up being uh, hurtful for them. All right. Well, that's it for the Politically Georgia podcast. We want you to be sure to rate us and subscribe because we've got more great content if you do. And well, as always, we just want to say thank you again for listening. I'm Condis Presley. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.